Hi, it's JP Mac, and welcome to Liberty Relearn, not just another conservative moment. Hi, everybody, welcome to the podcast, and today we are going to do a retrospective of Season 3, and of course Season 3 was the first season where we have video on Rumble and also on Spotify. And so I'm going to play for you today a few clips from the past season. And these are since uh, we started video. So we started video in September, uh, around September time frame of 2022. And so this is actually apropos to what's going on today. Because in the news today, uh, just a day ago yesterday, uh, we had the coronation of King Charles III. And so on this podcast, we're going to start out with a clip where I talk about, uh, just happened ju- just after the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, and of course, uh, King Charles III became uh, King Charles, he became king. And so now, um, a few months later, um, he is has now been coronated as king of the United Kingdom. And so we're going to start out with uh, back in September when uh, at the first passing of Queen Elizabeth II. So here is a little bit from that episode. So let's jump right into it. Uh, first we'll start off of course with the uh, death of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, she passed away on Thursday at the age of 96. She was the longest reigning monarch uh, ever in the Western world. And her death will, of course, have implications. Uh, the immediate implications, of course, will be her son Charles, who is now King Charles III, will um, begin his reign. And uh, he will probably be coronated sometime in the near future. I don't think that that date has been set. But for most of us alive today, most people alive today have only known one person as monarch of Great Britain, and that has been Queen Elizabeth II. And obviously the idea of a King Charles is going to take some getting used to. Um, but um, I think the uh, monarchy um, deserves to survive. I know people think it's an antiquated thing. It's a, uh, you know, a lot of people have suggested through the years that the time, there shouldn't be any monarchs. There shouldn't be any heads of state that are not elected, but the way it's been running for at least the modern era has been that the the king or queen of Great Britain is largely a ceremonial role anyhow. And so it's remember that, and also people complain about the uh, king and queen uh, living on the taxpayer dollars or the taxpayer pounds, as the case would be in Britain and so but 
my personal feeling is that it's an institution that's worth preserving and I hope that King Charles is up to the task um, but it is nonetheless um, a sad day for Great Britain and really the rest of the world um, Queen Elizabeth served her country with such grace and class that uh, she's really I think the gold standard for any monarchs that might come in the future uh, whether, for, whether it be Charles or maybe in a few years time um, one of the princes uh, who knows but she definitely set the standard for uh, reigning as a queen or a king and so good luck to King Charles and long live the king. So this next clip comes from uh, Constitution Day. Uh, it was Constitution Day special where I read the preamble to the United States Constitution which of course goes right to the heart of why I do what I do and what why what conservatives believe in and libertarians believe in and so this you know cuts right to the heart of what we believe so this is from the Constitution Day special I'd start the show reading those famous words that you've heard from everywhere from Star Trek to Kid Rock song I'm talking about the preamble to the Constitution so let's uh, talk about what uh, what this Constitution is all about or better yet let it explain for itself what it is when it says we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect Union establish justice ensure domestic tranquility provide for the common defense promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and posterity to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America and that is how the most famous document perhaps in world history uh, definitely the most famous and most influential governing document that's ever been penned uh, in world history many countries have based their constitutions on our US Constitution and why not it's never I think was a more perfect governing document that establishes the basis of a law for a people um, never has a better document been written than our US Constitution. So next is a clip from uh, this year's or last year's Halloween special uh, where I talk about uh, those things that scare the left the most and this is my top five list of things that scare the, the left the most. JP Mack and welcome to Liberty Relearn, not just another conservative blog. 
Okay, today is our Halloween special, and so we're going to talk about some very scary things and some very spooky ideas. Ah, alas, poor York. I knew him, Horatio. So today for Halloween, we're going to talk about those things that scare the leftists the most. And those things, uh, in reverse order, uh, are number five, individually held rights and beliefs. Individually held rights and beliefs. Collectivism is the core ideology of the left. Communism, socialism, and fascism are all variations of collectivism. The individual must surrender themselves to the collective. For the greater good has been the rationale behind every tyrannical law and dictate. Independent thinkers question the intentions of others and have a stubborn reliance on the facts when it comes to making important decisions for themselves and their loved ones. The leftist elite cannot have anyone questioning their decisions, much less refusing to go along with them. To paraphrase the fascist, nothing outside the collective, everything inside the collective, and nothing against the collective. All wants and needs must align with those of the collective. We see this taken to its logical extreme in Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, when society completely collapses without the services of those who refuse to sacrifice their own self-interest to an ungrateful society that takes them for granted. Number four, organized religion, especially Christianity and Judaism. For left to realize their totalitarian dreams, they know they cannot have any competing ideologies. Objective morality, like objective reality, acts as a sociological insulation against the kinds of amoral and even immoral behaviors that are necessary for the totalitarianism to gain and maintain control of the populace. Just like the pigs in Orwell's animal farm needed to change the laws of the farm to suit their needs and to give the appearance that they were not above the law, so too does the left need an ever-changing sense of morality that suits the needs of the elite among them. Ultimately, just as with the totalitarian system of the 20th centuries, the left needs you to be obedient not first to God or a set of laws such as the Constitution, but to them. Number three, having to defend their ideas. Their long war against free speech reached its zenith with the temporary deplatforming of Parler, a challenge to Twitter's dominance in the social media market. The social media giants Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube have decided, dedicated themselves to eliminating or squelching competing points of view. Time and again, conservative speakers have been the target of protests, sometimes violent, boycotts, and censorship. The left prefers cancellation to debate. Whenever you hear the terms like disinformation or misinformation being used in the mainstream media or a story gets quote fact-checked that's usually a sign that the article or statement in question runs afoul 
of their established approved narrative. This is a sign that the left realizes the fragility of one of their narratives. Number two, a Trump presidency. I know a lot of you thought this might have been number one, but uh, you'll see, you'll understand when you see number one. A Trump presidency, the Democrats have dedicated themselves since he was elected in 2016 to remove Donald Trump from power. Two failed impeachment attempts, zealous prosecution, and scores of nuisance lawsuits against Trump show just what an existential threat the left believe he poses to their plans. Even after two years out of office, Trump lives rentfully free in the heads of Democrats. President Biden even dedicated a speech almost entirely to labeling MAGA Republicans as threats to democracy. And the number one thing that the left fears the most is losing power. Power is the ultimate pursuit of the left. Follow the left's ideology to its logical conclusion and you have a totalitarian state not unlike the one imagined by Orwell in his novel 1984. It stands to reason then that their greatest fear is not being in control of everything and everyone. The left is highly motivated by fear and they fear a world in which they are not in control. And in such a wor world, they will be victimized by those who are. This is driven by the Marxist belief that all power balances between people result in an oppressor-oppressed relationship. And those are the top five things that the left so in season three, uh, we began to videotape or video the episodes. And so season three marks the beginning of our relationship with Rumble and with Spotify as far as video goes. And one of the main components of the video portion has been the dystopic journal. That's been pretty popular and it's going to continue on uh, of course into season four but um, so the most popular episode of the dystopic journal was one I uh, talk about John Galt's speech on individuality uh, that he gives in Ayn Rand's book Atlas Shrugged and so here is my synopsis my uh, talk on his speech, on John Galt's speech from Atlas Shrugged in uh, this episode. John Galt is, comes, comes back, he finally does this uh, expository speech, explains all of his motivations. He talks about, at length, about free will and, you know, people uh, following their own rational free will and, and the importance of uh, choice and reason and the importance of not acting as a collective or um, subsuming yourself to some collective and so here in these parts of the speech which I've kind of excerpts um, I'm talking a little bit more 
about this theme, particularly of, of individuality. And again, individuality is a huge theme all throughout um, Rand's literary works, from The Fountainhead to Anthem to Atlas Shrugged to her nonfictions like The Virtue of Selfishness. You know, um, individualism, the idea of individual people working for themselves and for their loved ones you know, for their own rational best interests, that's a th big theme that runs throughout all of her literary works. And so that's what we're going to hone in on today as I read some of these excerpts. And again, this is Galt, John Galt speaking, or John Galt speaking, um, but it's actually Anne Rand speaking through John Galt, as I mentioned. So uh, one of the themes of Atlas Shrugged and, the, and of the objectivist philosophy of Anne Rand is the idea that all rights are individual rights. She believed in the rights of minorities, and the smallest minority was the individual. Through John Galt's speech, she ties the idea that one owns oneself and that free will is one's chiefest, chief possession to the idea of people acting in their own self-best interests and against uh, acting in the form of a collective. And John Galt is saying here, that what you call your soul or spirit is your consciousness, and that which you call free will is your mind's freedom to think, or not the only will you have, your only freedom, the choice that controls all the choices you make and determines your life and your character. Uh, so Galt here is refuting the notion that anyone but him, or the, or the individual, has right to his life or happiness. And so he goes on to say, Just as I support my life, neither by robbery nor alms, but by my own effort, so I do not seek to derive my happiness from the injury or favor of others, but earn it by my achievement just as I do not consider the pleasure of others as the goal of my life, so I do not consider my pleasure as the goal of the lives of others, just as there are no contradictions in my values and no conflicts among my desires, so there are no victims and no conflicts of interest among rational men, men who do not desire the unearned and do not view one another with a cannibal's lust, men who neither make sacrifice nor accept them. And so here uh, is a scathing rebuke of the uh, society that kind of has devolved and demanded of people that they act in the interest of the collective. And so again, uh, Galt asserts he, he owes no one his life and happiness, nor does anyone owe him theirs. He chides those who voluntarily make themselves subservient to others. He justifies morality of acting in one's own self-interest with the notion that one must reciprocate that same right to others, rather than accept 
natural obligation to others, he follows an ethos of mutual non-obligation, except as a voluntary act of self-interest on the part of all parties. And so here uh, you have, because obviously you can't have people just um, operating in their own self-interest um, out of selfishness that there has to be some give and take, there has to be some reciprocity that says, Amga, I'll do my thing, you can do your thing, and as long as we're not hurting each other, uh, we're going to allow each other to proceed with whatever we want to do. And so that's what uh, Galt is talking about here. And so, and then he goes on to say, uh, do you ask what moral obligation I owe to my fellow men? None, except the obligation I owe to myself, to material objects, and to all of existence, rationality. I deal with men as my nature and their demands by, my, by means of reason. I seek or desire nothing from them except such relations as they care to enter of their own voluntary choice is only with their mind that I can deal and only for my own self-interest which they see that my interest coincides with others when they don't I enter no relationship I let uh, dissenters go their way and I do not swerve from mine I win by means of nothing but logic, and I surrender to nothing but logic. I do not surrender my reason or deal with men who surrender theirs. I have nothing to gain from fools or cowards. I have no benefits to seek from human vices, from stupidity, dishonesty, or fear. The only value men can offer me is the work of their mind. When I disagree with a rational man, I let reality be our final arbiter. If I am right, he will learn. If I am wrong, I, one of us, will win, but both will profit. And so, and then he ends uh, his speech with what I would call the objectivist creed, where he says, I will win when... You are ready to pronounce the oath I have taken at the start of my battle. And for those who wish to know the day of my return, I shall now repeat it to the hearing, to the hearing of the world. I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man, nor ask another man to live mine for mine. And that is... Uh, Atlas Shrugged by Anne Rand. And so, basically he's saying, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, as long as we're not uh, hurting each other or keeping each other from doing our, our things, our individuality, we're not interfering with anybody else's uh, doing their thing or acting in their own self-interest, we're going to continue um, acting in our own rational self-interest ourselves, or I'm going to act in my own self-interest and you act in yours. And that way, 
hopefully everybody in a rational society gets what they want and what they need and but doesn't preclude the idea of uh, cooperation sometimes your interests may coincide with somebody others and so you'll be uh, required to work um, together for mutual benefit you may need a job for wages I may need, I may need, a, may need a worker um, we make an agreement that's good for both of us and we proceed with that agreement as long as it's in our both of our rational self-interest and that is the ideal as being espoused by Rand and by Galt here in Atlas Shrugged and so that concludes at least for now our discussion about Galt's speech in Atlas Shrugged so maybe uh, next week we'll move on probably to Orwell and because you know this is the dystopic journal how can you just do a dystopic journal without mentioning do you know entire podcast so there were of course a lot of important events that took place uh, during season three and one of them was the midterm elections and so of course uh, we all know by now what happened the GOP took over the house these Democrats kept the Senate and of course there was a few other races of interest so in this clip I talk about uh, some of those other in, some of those other races as well as the um, turning over of the house to the GOP and this is GAP Mac and this is Liberty Relearn not just another conservative blog and we're going to continue on uh, talking about the midterms okay so last week I talked about the midterms that was shortly before they occurred now they, they they've occurred and guess what there was not the red wave that, that we thought and were expecting a lot of us were expecting to have red wave didn't quite materialize so here's what the status is now and so and that does get us asking the question so what happened with the election uh, the Senate will remain under control of the Democrats we'll talk about that and the House of Representatives will almost assuredly be under control of the Republicans Republicans only have to win a few more seats they're way ahead of the count uh, they have only to win like nine or so more seats in the House of Representatives to uh, take back the speakership to take take back the House and so we'll talk about what that means and then of course you had a lot of uh, other races particularly for governors you have um, pretty much um, status quo you did have uh, one thing we'll talk about uh, is the Pennsylvania governor's race with Shapiro winning over Mastriano and also uh, Fetterman uh, defeating uh, Dr. Oz for the, the uh, U.S. Senate seat in Pennsylvania and we'll ask the questions did the Pennsylvanians go insane uh, why did they do this 
Um, so we'll, we'll, talk, we'll address that first, you know, the elephant in the room. I mean, there's a, there's a few races that are interesting. Uh, to me, the Oz race against Fetterman. Uh, Fetterman, as you may know, suffered a stroke uh, earlier in this year. And so, but anyway, he basically did what Biden did during the presidential election. He just played rope-a-dope, uh, didn't make too many public appearances, uh, and waited a last until the last minute to do his appearance with, um, or to do his debate. And we'll talk about that. So that, that uh, we can see in play already um, why the Democrats favored some changes to uh, how vote elections are done in states like Pennsylvania. They did early voting. Uh, early voting in Pennsylvania is something like 20 days before the election. And so by the time Fetterman um, debated Dr. Oz, he only debated him once on TV, by the time Fetterman debated Dr. Oz, people were already voting in the state of Pennsylvania. And so now we kind of know why the Democrats favored that, because they favor it because they want as many people voting as possible before the, de the debates occur. Okay, particularly if they don't think they're going to win the debates, um, which suggests to me that they have a lack of message. They have, they know they cannot win on policies, so they want to um, de delay debates or not have debates at all. I think in uh, the race in Arizona for governor with Carrie Lake, her opponent uh, didn't want to debate her. And of course, why not? Because um, if you listen to or watch Carrie Lake at all on the campaign, campaign trail, she basically owned um, the mainstream, you know, the mainstream media. She basically, quote unquote, owned the libs, as we sometimes call it. Um, so her opponent didn't want to debate her. Then you had in Pennsylvania, you had Fetterman, who again had a stroke and so has cognitive difficulties, um, has difficulties processing information verbally, um, so he needs to read from a teleprompter to get the actual idea. So he needs to work with the teleprompter. That was one of the conditions of his debate with Dr. Oz, was that they have the teleprompter. And of course, um, predictably, and say, unfortunately, you know, it brings me no joy to say this as a human being, but predictably, the person who suffered a stroke and is still suffering from uh, disabilities um, did poorly, um, relatively poorly in the debate. And so a lot has been made on that, so I'm not really going to rehash that already, but if you watched any portions of the debate, you, you you can see for yourself, uh, Fetterman was not good at responding questions, not good at thinking on his feet. Um, as you see that, as opposed to his campaign commercials, a little bit more polished, 
you know, he can uh, do a few takes and he can get it right. And so he looks more polished and clean in the, his campaign commercials um, as opposed to like in a debate where he has to think on his feet or even making public appearances, asking, answering questions, you know, he was shielding, he was shielded from having to answer a lot of questions from the, the news media. And so that was a, I'd say, a big thing. And so, which leads to our, you know, so that shows you why I think the Democrats want early voting. They want as many people voting as possible before the debates. I think had there only been the traditional way of absentee ballots and voting on the day of election, I think Fetterman would have lost. I think uh, most of the people who voted for Fetterman uh, voted for him prior to the, his performance in the debates. Okay, um, so I'd have to look at the numbers to verify that, but that's my working assumption. I think if you, um, kind of like if you, when they say that, um, when they ask people who voted for Biden um, early, you know, if they had known about the uh, Hunter Biden laptop from hell, had they known about that story, would that have changed their vote? And something like 6% enough to change the, the election possibly. Uh, voted, say they wouldn't have voted, voted for Biden had they known about the Hunter Biden laptop story. And so that's kind of the same phenomena we have here with Fetterman. Um, most of the people voted for him just strictly along um, along party lines, you know, supporting their tribe on the left and so I mean probably they would have voted for him no matter what but anybody I think a lot of people would have stayed at home or or voted for Oz had they seen the the debate but so now you know I, th I think we can say pretty pretty much for certain why the Democrats favor the um, the early voting and while they try to get out of debates at least as much as possible um, when they can particularly when they their candidate is not very good at um, expressing him or herself live and thinking on their feet live on stage in front of an audience and so the most popular uh, Liberty Relearn podcast episode at least on Rumble, was uh, the one which dealt with the Chinese spy balloons, and you may remember that. And so this next clip is uh, from the LR episode of Balloons and Clowns. Hi, it's JP Mac, and welcome to Liberty Relearn, not just another conservative blog. So when I started podcast, I never imagined I'd do an episode uh, about the U.S. shooting down a spy balloon. But here we are three weeks later and I've done three episodes. 
at least mentioning the down balloons and other balloons. And so uh, Biden's balloon gate continues into this week and it only gets uh, more and more interesting. So the latest in balloon gate, as I like to call it, um, is the, the possibility that one of, at least one of the balloons that was shot down was a cheap uh, hobby balloon uh, put up by um, hobbyist, um, the group of like a ham radio enthusiasts and weather balloon enthusiasts. Um, they put it up just uh, for their hobby. And so I'm looking at this article from aviationweek.com and of course I never thought I'd be doing quoting aviationweek.com on this podcast either but here we are um, because in a recent article by them um, by Steve Trumbull dated February 16, 2023 um, and it's entitled Hobby Club's Missing Balloon Feared Shot Down by USAF and that is not a story from the Babylon Bee. This is not satire. This is an actual real story. Basically what happened is there's this club, kind of like a ham radio uh, club, and you know, a group of hobbyists in Illinois, and they put up this balloon, a weather balloon, to track where it would go. Um, you know, the weather patterns and, and the wind patterns and whatnot. And so they uh, launched this balloon and it went missing right around the time that one of the balloons, one of the three uh, flying objects, was shot down by the U.S. Air Force. And this was the one that was shot down over Canada. And so now I'm just going to read this um, brief article, uh, parts of this brief article from uh, Aviation Week uh, describing exactly what happened. A small globe-trotting balloon declared missing in action by an Illinois-based hobbyist club on February 15th has emerged as a candidate to explain one of the three mystery objects shot down by four heat-seeking missiles launched by U.S. Air Force fighters since February 10th. Um, so notice it said three objects shot down by four missiles. That means one of the missiles missed. Um, fact not lost on many of us, I'm sure. Alright, so the article continues the club, the Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade, NIBBB, is not pointing fingers yet, but the circumstantial evidence is at least intriguing. The club's silver-coated, party-style Pico balloon reported its last position on February 10th at 38,910 feet off of the west coast of Alaska and a popular forecasting tool, the Hisplit model, 
provided by the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, projected the cylindrically shaped object would be floating high over the central part of the Yukon Territory on February 11th. This is the same day a Lockheed Martin F-22 shot down an unidentified object of similar description and altitude in the same general area. There are suspicions among other prominent members of the small Pico ballooning enthusiast community, which combines ham radio and high-altitude ballooning into a single relatively affordable hobby. Quote, I tried contacting our military and the FBI and just got the runaround to try to enlighten them on what a lot of these things probably are. And they're going to look not too intelligent to be shooting them down, said Ron Meadows, the founder of Scientific Balloon Solutions SBS, a Silicon Valley company that makes purpose-built Pico balloons for hobbyists, educators, and scientists. The descriptions of all three unidentified, unidentified objects shot down February 10th through 12th matched the shapes, altitudes, and payloads of the small Pico balloons, which can usually be purchased from $12 to $100, $180 each, depending on the type. I'm guessing probably they were Pico balloons, said Tom Medlin, a retired FedEx engineer and co-host of the Amateur Radio Roundtable Show. Medlin has three Pico balloons in flight in the northern and southern hemispheres. And it talks about uh, Aviation Week. They contacted NORAD and FBI. Uh, pretty much of no use. Uh, he says, or a NORAD spokesman says, I have no update for you from NORAD on these objects, a NORAD spokesman says. On February 15th, NSC spokesman John Kirby told reporters all three objects, quote, could just be balloons tied to some commercial or benign purpose. But he did not mention the possibility of Pico balloons. Launching high-altitude Circumnavigational Pico balloons has emerged only within the past decade. Meadows and his son Lee discovered it was possible to calculate the amount of helium gas necessary to make a common latex balloon neutrally buoyant at altitudes over 43,000 feet. The balloons carry an 11 gram tracker on a tether along with HF and VHF UHF antennas to update their positions to ham radio receivers around the world. So basically what these balloons do is once they launch them uh, they go up um, past what does it look like uh, around 43,000 feet. They basically fly around circumnavigate the world and they send back uh, single uh, signals um, to these uh, ham radio enthusiasts that can track their the altitude and position of the balloon.
So a little further down, um, in fact, uh, the Pico ballooning community is nervous about the negative attention by some members of Congress and the White House who have called the objects shot down at altitudes of 20 to 40,000 feet dangerous to civil aviation. We did assess that their altitudes were considerably lower than the Chinese high altitude balloon and did pose a threat to civilian commercial air traffic, Kirby says. And while we have no specific reason to suspect that they were conducting surveillance of any kind, we couldn't rule that out. So I guess um, with all our technology, our government cannot detect the difference between a $99 hobbyist balloon and a full-scale uh, Chinese spy balloon. And so uh, Liberty Relearn isn't just about uh, politics or current events, it's also about um, some more important things, um, uh, things of uh, religious nature. And one of the things I do every year is give a uh, Christmas message and so we take a, a break from the politics and the current event uh, of the day and I talk about uh, the message of Christmas and so here is my message from this past year uh, Christmas of 2022 Hi, Merry Christmas! I'm JP Mack, and this is the Christmas edition of Liberty Relearn, not just another conservative blog. And yes, I am recording this on Christmas Day, so by the time you see or hear this, it won't be Christmas Day anymore. It'll be Boxing Day or even later. But Christmas Day is but the first of the 12 days of Christmas. So, Hopefully you will still be watching this or listening to this during Christmas time, at least technically. Okay, so today I just want to uh, wish you, of course, a Merry Christmas and a Merry Christmas to you and your family and a Happy New Year. May your New Year be uh, truly great. May, be, may it be uh, better than this year. And we, of course, will be talking about uh, the new year in coming episodes of the Liberty Relearn podcast. But today, I just want to give you my Christmas message. So my message this Christmas is about how we reenact the nativity each year at Christmas time without even perhaps realizing it. And I'm going to start with a verse from the Bible that uh, has to do with the nativity of Jesus. And it's from Luke chapter two, verses eight through 14. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. 
to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. Luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 14. On that day, whether it was December 25th or some other day, God gave us the gift of himself. He gave us our Savior, our Messiah. This event was so sacred, so special, that his angels sang for joy about Jesus' birth. He did it because he favors us, his children. This gift of his only begotten Son also gave us a gift, that of salvation. As children, we make Christmas about getting gifts. We unknowingly reenact, in a way, the anticipation of his people on that first Christmas day of a Messiah who would come to free God's people, his favorite. As we get older and more mature, we come to know the joy of giving. We come to identify with God's part in this nativity drama, the giving part. Giving gifts, then, is how we in our own small way emulate his part of the story. We continue to love to receive gifts to be sure but we also learn the joy of giving this is not insignificant for in giving gifts we make ourselves more like the father we create a cycle of joy of simultaneous giving and receiving we learn if we are wise that we should give of ourselves give our lot our love to others. We also, like the shepherds in the field and their people, anticipate his coming and sing out with joy as the angels did when we feel his presence among us. So in life's nativity play, we at times play the parts of the shepherds, the angels, and our father our tradition of gift-giving, receiving and rejoicing over the whole thing is the value of the Christmas season. The hope is that we continue reenacting the nativity play, perpetuating the cycle of giving, receiving and rejoicing continuously in various ways throughout the world. And this is my Christmas message so it's not just uh, Christmas that's important to Christians, but the most uh, holy day of the Christian calendar is actually Easter Sunday. And so um, a few weeks ago I gave this message, my annual Easter message. And so this final segment of the yearly review, uh, we will end on that. And here it is. Everybody to all who celebrate that holiday. Um, today I am going to repeat my Easter message of 2022. Of course, when I made this message originally a year ago, uh, we were just uh, coming out of the 
starting to come out of the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. And so that's where I was coming from mainly at that time. But also it was a greater message of us being in a cyclical world and universe. Uh, um, it's the cycle of life, death, and rebirth. And so I'm going to talk about that in this message. And I figured rather than just, you know, because I wanted to talk about the cycle of life, death, and rebirth again this year. And I couldn't think of any way, any spin to put on it other than what I wrote last year. So I figured what I'll do is I'll just uh, reread last year's message and then just put a little bit of um, a new take on it, as it were. And so maybe we'll explore some of the other uh, themes and, uh, and apply that that new knowledge that we've gained in, in the uh, last 12 months. And we'll talk a little bit about that too. But I really didn't, you know, didn't want to have a different message. I want to, you know, I like the message of the cycle of life. And so I wanted to talk about that. And really I didn't see much, honestly, that I could expand upon what I, you know, approve upon what I wrote last year. So I'm going to go on with that. So forgive me if some of this sounds familiar. Um, I believe I did le read this on the podcast last year. But again, we're talking about an annual renewal. And so this is a renewal of this particular reading, this particular essay I did. Uh, my Easter message to you um, from last year and so now I'm just going to get right into it uh, here is my Easter message uh, 2022 Easter celebrates the resurrection and calls to mind the cycle of life death and rebirth in the northern hemisphere it is celebrated as a spring holiday spring seems like the appropriate season to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. The rebirth of the natural world around us reminds us of Jesus' restoration to life. The world in 2022 seems to be in the spring cycle as it emerges from the scourge of coronavirus pandemic and destructive authoritarianism. Slowly, we see our freedoms coming back to life. Most of us, at least, can work, play, and worship with renewed freedom and with restored vigor. But just as not every tree and plant grow back its foliage, and just not uh, as every flower will bloom at the same time, nor will every nation, state, and town be restored. The total restoration takes time. But the arrival of summer is a force of nature. Mammals awake from their winter slumber. They may be weak at first, but nature drives them to seek nutrition. Humans also emerge requiring sustenance, not just for the body, for their minds and spirit as well. We live through a two-year winter of death, physical, moral, and spiritual. 
just as nature drives the newly awakened bear to search for what will give it and its family life, nature calls for us to restore the spiritual, intellectual, and emotional balance to our lives. Easter reminds us that just as Jesus was reborn as a higher eternal form of himself, that we can and must strive to do the same. Life and freedom are the twin gifts of the Creator that He has given to us. As one or the other becomes diminished, the, their restoration, rebirth, resurrection, once started, becomes a force of nature. As we will it, death gives way to life, fear to courage, and oppression to freedom become one with that force of nature that depends, demands the scales be rebalanced in favor of our divine right and perhaps achieve in the process a rebirth to a higher form of spiritual life. Paschal blessings to you. And I repeat those same Paschal blessings to you again this year in 2023. And so, as this comes from the Christian perspective, uh, I want to strive on this program to make this accessible to people of all different religions. So hopefully you can relate in your own way to this message. So I start out by um, stating that you know life is a cycle of life, death, and rebirth and in the northern hemisphere here um, it ha it is occurring you know spring is occurring during the Easter season and that does seem appropriate because we celebrate the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ and so we celebrate the rebirth aspect of spring and of the four seasons knowing that is a cycle now, of course, those who believe, uh, we believe that uh, Jesus Christ, through his resurrection, broke that cycle and um, achieved uh, eternal life. And so this is something that we all try to emulate as Christians, and hopefully we can achieve one day um, with his grace. And so that has been my recap of season three, a season that uh, had a few new beginnings, such as our beginning on Rumble and on Spotify as a video uh, channel. And I look forward to talking to the rest of you, all of you, uh, again in next season, season four. four. So please look forward uh, to that. I want to thank you for following the Until next time, stay healthy, happy, and free.